I loved him more than I've ever loved any person or thing. Animal lovers, welcome back to Rescued by a Dog, the podcast about dogs that have actually saved their owners' lives. As always, I'm Laura, host of the podcast, and before we get to today's story, I need to ask your help to keep this podcast going. If you love the podcast and you're able to support it with just $5 a month, please go to patreon.com backslash rescued by a dog podcast. You'll become a founding member of the Rescued by a Dog community and you'll receive exclusive access to extra content and a direct line to give me feedback about the podcast. Your contribution will allow me to continue sharing these uplifting, heart-swelling stories. Again, that's patreon.com. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. So patreon.com backslash rescued by a dog podcast. Now we're going to hear from Drew, one of the only people known to have survived three sudden cardiac arrests in one night. Thankfully, Drew's rescue pup, Lucky, learned exactly what to do to keep his beloved daddy alive. Hello? Can you see me? I can't see you, but I can hear you now. Hi. You can see me now. I can. Hi, Drew. How you doing? Very well. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you. I'm so grateful that you're talking to me today and I can't wait to hear your story. Why don't we start with you telling me the name of the dog we're going to talk about and what do they look like? Yeah. So um, my dog's name was Lucky and and Lucky was a a, a version of hound dog that's called a plot hound, P-L-O-T-T. And he was probably 55 pounds, but he was black and brindle. And so he had, uh, with the exception of like right in the middle of his chest was, was a, a white patch. And I swear to God, it looked like he was wearing, he was dressed in a tuxedo. But the way that I found Lucky was I had decided that I wanted to get a dog. And, um, um, there's a, a girl that I was dating and she was looking on, I think, I don't even know if it exists anymore. Something I think was back then it was called pet finder or dog finder or pup finder. I don't know, something finder. Anyway. And we found that outside of Nashville in an area called Springfield, Tennessee, they had a shelter that was basically a basically a volunteer shelter. So they had posted this little puppy and his his kennel name was Chase. And his story was I mean, the place was it had it basically was a, a metal barn type building. And, and on the outside, it had, you know, a very high, like a seven foot high fence. And that went all the way around the property. In the middle of the night, someone had come to the kennel and they'd taken a puppy when he was about six weeks old. And they'd gone up to the fence and they just they just dropped him over the fence into this into this yard. And they got it on camera, you know, the people dropping him. But when they came in, this dog, this little puppy was in the yard by himself and and he liked to be chased. And so and so they named him Chase. And um, so anyway, um, shortly thereafter, almost right away, somebody, somebody adopted him and they brought him back a few days later and said, you know, the dog poops too much. And so um, uh, they put him up on Pet Finder. We found him. We went to look at him and I felt bad because the day that we went in, I'm not kidding you. There must have been, I don't know, 12 or 12 or 15 puppies, you know, that were about the eight week old mark. And not of his breed. They were all different kinds of breeds. 
And I wasn't sure which one that we had kind of put a reserve for. And I just went in and sat down in the kennel with all the puppies. I didn't care puppy poop. I don't care whatever it was going to be. You know what I mean? And this dog walked up to me and he climbed up in my lap and got up in his arms and he stuck his nose between my arm and my chest and just kind of snuggled into me. And, and I looked at the lady and I said, I'm taking this one. And uh, she said, well, I don't think that she said, I think that one is spoken for. And I said, well, unless you can rip them out of my arms, I'm, I'm taking this one. And so she went and she looked at who had reserved the dog. Well, it was my girlfriend at the time that had reserved the dog. So it was, it was our reservation. Did you love him right away too? Oh, hundred percent. I cried on the way home when I got him. He never, he never did anything wrong. Never peed inside, never, you know, never ate anything, never chewed anything up. Yeah, he was, he was awesome. Lucky would, Lucky would come once I got all situated in the bed, he would sit next to me at the kind of my side of the bed and he would look at me and wait for me to tell him, okay. And then he would jump in the bed, you know what I mean? And many years ago, there was a, there was a young lady who I'd been dating for a short short period of time and it was kind of at that point where it was going to be the the first the first sleepover stay overnight and so lucky jumped into bed and she said oh is is he going to sleep between us and i said he's going to sleep anywhere he wants and she kind of huffed and puffed about it and so the next day i told her i said you know i don't think this is going to work out (laughs) that was the end of it you know (laughs) like she never came back And um, the backstory that a lot of people don't know here is that um, ostensibly, I'm the only medical case in the world to survive three sudden cardiac arrests in the same night. Um, The easiest way to understand the difference between a heart attack and a cardiac arrest is if you think of your body kind of like you would your house. A heart attack is um, your plumbing is clogged up, right? That would that would be that would be a heart attack. But a cardiac arrest is like going to the main circuit board and just turning off all the electricity to your house. You know what I mean? So there is no like there's not a pain where you have like there's no attack that comes on where you where you feel a pain. You just fall over dead in the floor. You know, like that's the extent of it. And it's just like turning out the breaker. And and it is a electrical malfunction of the heart. It's an electrophysiology malfunction of the heart which is the rhythm gets out, you know, even by a nanosecond. And it causes that misrhythm basically creates um, almost like an electrical storm, like a, like lightning and thunder actually, actually, and the heart just stops. So mine was related specifically to stress. We had done an acquisition on a business um, back then. And it had turned out that the guy that sold us the business had, he had falsified and, and forged financial documents. Uh, and about six months into it, we realized we were about four hundred and eighty to 500000 a year in the hole on accounts receivable. So ultimately, it circled the drain and crashed and burned. You know, I was 30 years old. And I think I think the bankruptcy that I had to go through at the time, both individually and as a corporation, if I remember correctly, it was somewhere around, you know, a million or a million and five, you know, or something like that. Yeah, it was it was a really tough time. And there was it was publicized. And my girlfriend at the time had just started a new job. And, and this is serendipitous, isn't it? 
I was on the way to my house. Uh, we didn't live together. I was on the way to my house and she called me. I was almost home and she said, Hey, come over. I'm, I'm cooking tonight. And, um, to celebrate the first day of my new job, I want you to come over. I said, okay, great. So I just drove right past my house, went to her house about 10 minutes away and we had dinner. And then we decided that we were going to look at something on, um, online about a vacation around Christmas time. And so I sat down at the computer, um, you know, there in, in, at her place. And no sooner did I sit down there and begin to look up is that I, I felt my, you know, I felt my vision close in like a tunnel vision. And I said, whoa. And she said, what? And then I fell over in the floor. I was dead. And um, <clears throat> and so after about a minute, I kind of <clears throat> I kind of came to all on my own. And she said, what was that? And I said, I don't. What are you talking about? I don't, I don't know. And she was like, and she explained it to me. And she said, we need to go to the hospital right now. I said, okay, let me go to the bathroom. And so I went to the bathroom and then, and I splashed water on my face. And I, this was very haunting. And I don't know if anybody's ever done this, but I got up really close, almost nose to nose with myself in the mirror. And I could see in my own face that subconsciously, I knew something was wrong and I was scared but I could visually see that looking back in my own eyes. It was really weird. It was really, because you would think if you feel like you're scared, you would know you're scared, right? You know, and I was kind of going, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then I could see my own reflection in the mirror. And I'm like, that is not the face of a person that is fine. And then as I began to come out of the bathroom, I stopped in the doorway and she said, what? And so um, I thought, I'm going to hit the floor. I'm going to bust my nose. Blood's going to go everywhere. She's going to freak out. So before that happens, and this went through my brain in a split second, I'm going to get to my knees. And so I fell to my knees. And then no sooner had I fallen to my knees than I collapsed on the floor and face down. And this was the interesting thing. I realized at that moment I wasn't passing out. There was a very real feeling. And I said, oh, you're dying. And then she called 911. I was laying there about five minutes or so, and I was completely dead. Face blue, eyes open, no breathing. I was dead. And um, when the paramedics got there and they began to try to um, jumpstart me you know, with the paddles, and they did it once, nothing. They did it a second time, nothing. And then the officers said, let's give him an epinephrine. So they shot me with epinephrine which causes your heart to quiver. Now, the reason why a sudden cardiac arrest is different than a heart attack is that in a heart attack, you can just do CPR and it pushes the blockage through. My heart had no activity. There, not only was there no blockage, there was just no activity. It wasn't moving. It wasn't trying to beat. There was nothing. It was dead. It was out. And so when they shoot you with epinephrine, it causes your heart to basically tremble or quiver. Um, and then the officer said, we're going to shock him one more time. If we can't get a, a pulse, we're gonna have to call it. You know, he's dead. And so they shocked me again, and they said, we got a pulse, but he's not breathing. So they took a big, what looks like a hook, and they stick it down your throat into your lungs that's connected to a bag. And then they manually push the bag and release the bag. 
So it's blowing oxygen into your lungs and, and you know, is resuscitating you. And um, <clears throat> so they you know, picked me up. They got me out of, you know, in the ambulance, took me over to Vanderbilt Medical. And then, you know, had me on a, a ventilator machine, life support thing there. And then I had another um, sudden cardiac arrest in the hospital while I was connected to the machines. And allegedly, they said that they they shocked me over a dozen times before they finally got me to actually come back to life. Um, they ultimately said, you know, it was an idiopathic uh, response and and they tied it to stress from, you know, from the business. And so when I, I was in a medically induced coma for three days, I woke out of that on my own and they began a series of uh, neurological tests and uh, cardiac catheterization tests. And they said, uh, you know what? There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing to fix. And there's no evidence that you ever had any cardiac you know, um, event whatsoever. And they said, we need to, you know, we need to um, implant you with a cardiac defibrillator, which I have um, my upper left side of my chest. And um, in case your heart ever stops again, and it'll keep you alive. And so I was prescribed a medical service animal under the auspices that I have to find one and I had to find someone to train it. And so, um, so that was it. Eight weeks old, picked Lucky up. And almost immediately started working with one of the foremost um, uh, dog behaviorists in the nation um, named Robert Cabral. And Robert started training uh, Lucky just at the very basic levels and so on and so forth. And then he was trained to be a cardiac alert service dog. And he said, because the dog is going to be a medical service dog, you're never going to train him from an obedience standpoint like you would a regular dog. We're not going to go through crate training and various, he said, we're not going to do not a single bit of that because the dog has to know to communicate to you what it needs as opposed to you reading what the dog needs. And so I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, you have stairs in your house, right? And I said, yeah. He said, do not teach the dog how to go up and down the stairs. He said, when you come to the stairs, you pick the dog up, you carry him down the stairs, you sit him down. You got to go up the stairs, you pick the dog up, you walk up the stairs with him. When it's time for him to go out, you take him out in an order. So after he eats and, you know, we had a schedule set up and he said, every time something happens, the next thing is that he needs to go out. You don't walk him over to the door and then let him, you know, scratch on the door and then you open the door and he walks out. Absolutely not. So and and so this was the point that he wanted to make is he said, I want the dog to communicate to you what he wants to happen not to try to solve the problem for himself. As a result, his training was so fast. Um, I hadn't had him probably two weeks. And at about three o'clock in the morning, he was standing. Um, he was trained to be in the bed with me right next to me. And, um, you know, because of, you know, the part of his part of his medical service. And um, <clears throat> but he needed to go out. Well, doors were open. He could have walked out of the bedroom. He could have peed in the floor. He could have done anything. But instead, he was standing and he was scratching me with his paw, you know, and he was like 10 weeks old. You know, he was tapping me. Hey, dad, 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 dad. Because when he had to pee, his communicative thought was, this guy has to take me to do that. I don't go on my own. Plot hounds by breed 
are ridiculously, ridiculously high scent and sound. And I always, when when people told me that, and they were like, yeah, yeah, all dogs, until I got other dogs. And then I realized the other dogs had not a clue what was going on compared to what he had going on, right? And so um, cardiac alert service dogs have a protocol uh, specific to me. Um, my uh, My cardiac event was deemed related to stress or improper kind of um, uh, um, you know, kind of uptake of cortisol hormone, which is a stress-related hormone. And, um, and so they train the dog to have go through a series of protocol reactions um, anytime that they smell that. So they, they can actually smell that. It's in your saliva or he would come up and he would lick the palm of my hand and, and stuff like that. And so what they would do is they um, test for my increased levels of, of cortisol and then take a, a sponge and then I would chew it up. I would get it soaked in saliva and then put it in the, and then put it in the can. And then every time it, he would open it, he smells it. Then they teach him to go through a protocol. So when he smelled um, rapid increases in cortisol hormone, one of the things that he would do is to get me to a safe place and make me sit down. Um, it's very similar to what you might see the seizure dogs do. I don't know if you've seen those. Yeah. And so it's very similar to that. And then he would get up in my face because he can smell in the saliva. So I have to breathe in his face and he would literally, he'd have his paws on me, you know, like you can't get up. I, I had to fly a lot for work all over the country. I had a, back then I had a concierge um, fitness business that worked with the film and television in television industry, as well as the music industry. But well, Lucky was there, lived on the tour bus when we were on the tour bus, backstage, on stage, you know, everywhere I was, there was Lucky. So at once, right after he passed, I looked up his, um, I did a calculation, and including the eight weeks before I adopted him, in his entire life, he was only ever away from me for 11 weeks, period, ever, in his entire 15 years and change. You know, um, in 2015, um, Sylvester Stallone executive produced a show on NBC called Strong, where he found allegedly the 10 most elite fitness experts in the country, and he put us all on a TV show together. And Lucky was on that show with me. I didn't do that show without without Lucky. So we were at an event in downtown St. Louis at a uh, St. Louis Cardinals baseball game uh, down near the stadium. There is a very large, it, it, it may just be an enormous sports bar. I don't know what it is, but it's three stories. It's huge. It's the size of an arena, this place. And um, and we were there, myself and um, my, my girlfriend at the time and Lucky Dog and a bunch of other people that we were with. And we were upstairs on the third level in a private dining area um, for this event. And this is the remarkable thing, and it would absolutely blow your mind because we had to walk to get up there, right? For whatever reason, Lucky had a freak out that he relayed to me, and he was determined that he was going to get me out of there, and he would not start barking or pulling on my leash. And so when I just followed him, he took me down three levels through the arena and outside to the grass. Like he had memorized 
how to get out of the building from the way that we came in, it was it was maybe the most remarkable thing that he ever did. And so he got me outside to a clearing on the grass. He jumped on me until I sat down on the grass and he got right up in my face. And we sat there for about 15 minutes. And then he basically was like, OK, you're good. And we went back in. That's the interesting thing about about um, this hypercortisol sensitivity is that you don't necessarily know when it's happening. You know what I mean? And so that's the danger. And you may or may not be in a position where you could theoretically have a sudden cardiac arrest. Um, I will say my in almost 20 years, my defibrillator has never gone off. That was lucky. Lucky was simple. If he was nervous or he was scared or whatever it was, he'd come to me, he'd jump up on the couch, he'd lay, put his head on me, and he wouldn't move. He was as peaceful as he could be. Like he would sit out in, you know, they say dogs are afraid of fireworks, baloney. Lucky would sit out under the fireworks as we were watching them, you know, I mean, right under them. And, you know, for 4th of July, he could not care less, you know, as long as he was next to me. I've been, you know, in Casa Tua in Aspen, you know, restaurant Daniel in New York City, you know, the nicest of the nicest of the nice restaurants, you know what I mean? And, and Lucky comes in, and immediately they look like you can't bring your dog in here. And I say, this is a medical service dog protected by the American Disabilities Association Act. And, um, and um, you know, he's, this is what he does. He's, okay. Well, and then they see, like, he would march over to the table. I sit down. He would sit and wait for me to sit at the table. And then he would go around to the left side of the chair. And he would climb under the chair. And he would lay down completely under the chair. Right. And then people, I mean, and he was taught to do that, right? And people would come over and then and then they would go, Oh, he really is a service dog. One of the things that was the most <laughs> he started doing it with a puppy and he did it his entire life. He never chewed up anything. Never. Um, but what he liked to do was to <laughs> get your attention, he would come steal your stuff. He, he never chewed up a sock ever, but he would steal your socks and then he would come stand in front of you and show you that he had your socks <laughs> so that you would chase him to try to get said sock. If Lucky were here with us and he, he understood human English, what would you like to mm -hmm. say to him? The thing that I think I would tell him would be that no dog will ever replace him. No person will ever replace him. And that not only did he have an indelible mark on my life, but that I loved him more than I've ever loved any person or thing. And I used to tell him all the time, I used to say, buddy, I love you more than people love dogs. And I think that's what I'd tell him.